Welcome to the Loins of History, a podcast ca- connecting history to current events. Last week we finished up our series, well, we finished up our mini series, I should say, on the Cultural Revolution with the death of Mao Zedong and the rise of Deng Xiaoping as the chairman of the CCP. And this week we're going to start talking about the second communicate communique, excuse me, or communique if you are French, depending on the pronunciation you want to have. Communique. That was kind of Russian wasn't it? Yeah, I don't know what that was. <laughs> that was like, that was more just sexy Colin. Everything I say is like that. Anyway, uh, we're all, leave, we're leaving all this in. During, after, after Mao Zedong died uh, and Deng Xiaoping became the chairman of the CCP, relations between the United States and China continued to improve. As we talked about a few weeks ago with Nixon and Kissinger visiting in, in 71 and 72, but it's going to become a tricky situation now because Taiwan was up until this point still recognized as the Republic of China. And as we all know, the Chinese want a one China policy. So how the US is going to navigate the China-Taiwan situation, if you will, is going to be very tricky for the next couple of years. And it relates especially today because as you've probably been seeing and reading about in the news, the Chinese have been conducting drills off the coast of Taiwan. At an increased frequency, there's been different think tanks releasing reports about a potential Chinese invasion of Taiwan and what would occur, potential casualties, win-loss scenarios, things like that. I believe the PLA even has their own initiative by 2027 for a unified China. So as we can see, this is going to become extremely relevant over the next couple of years and how we navigate it. And if we go back to 1979 with the second communique, this is kind of the genesis of where these Taiwan crisis really started to begin. So Jay, can you take us away with the key takeaways? I will take us away. Take us away with the takeaways. (laughs) Jay, can you- Take me away. I'm not even going to (laughs) start. Yeah. So first key takeaway, the normalization of relations between the US and the PRC or People's Republic of China were done in such a way that prevented conflict in the near term. So like Colin said, that there were there were two explicit Taiwan Strait crises in the 50s. There would be a there will be a third in the 90s, but we haven't got there yet. The normalization of relations prevented another Taiwan Strait crisis in the short term. However, it left no guarantees to lasting peace. And we'll and we'll see why here in a second. Key takeaway number two here is that. The U.S. solidified what we call our one China policy, just to try to distinguish it from some other things. The the CCP has what it's called is the one China principle, a little bit different than the U.S. one China policy. We'll go into those details uh, later, but the U.S. has... we. We created here in 1979, this episode's going to focus on 1979 and 1980, we clung to the one China policy and a position of strategic ambiguity. Strategic ambiguity meaning we intentionally don't come down on one side or the other. Specifically, we will not say the one China policy is the US not saying that Taiwan, that the proper uh, suzerain of Taiwan is the Communist Chinese Party. Uh, nor will we say Taiwan is its own independent country. We maintain this position of strategic ambiguity. However, uh, you know, if you read the news, especially here in the United States, you'll see that recent statements and the obvious deterioration of relations between the PRC in the US show that that ambiguity is starting to decrease and that it appears the US is basically de facto saying that Taiwan is an independent country. Last key takeaway, key takeaway number three is in 1979, when the Carter administration signed the joint uh, uh, communique that normalized relations between the PRC and the US, we swapped formal recognition of the government of China from Taiwan, also called the Republic of China or the ROC. We swapped it from them to the CCP and the PRC. 
By doing that, the U.S. casts significant doubt on its willingness to uphold commitments and treaties because prior to that point, we had a mutual defense treaty with Taiwan and it casts doubt on our commitment to a liberal world order. I've talked about what that means in in previous episodes, but quickly and generically, a liberal world order is just simply saying is like this post-World War II idea that countries are independent, countries have a right to maintain their sovereignty, to include their territorial sovereignty, countries have a right to not be invaded by a neighbor or anything like that. And there are certain legal grounds in which that is permissible and not permissible. And you know, the UN is kind of a big symbol of, of this liberal world order. So Jake, can you give... Can you start telling the story of how it happened from Nixon? Because, you know, after Nixon, it's not like things just became all hunky dory. You know, what did we do between that 72 to 79 period? Because obviously relations were improving, but they hadn't normalized yet. So what do we do right after the Nixon, the Nixon visit? Yeah, that's, that's a great question, Colin. So as we talked about two episodes ago, Literally months after Nixon's visit to China, the Watergate scandal started brewing. And it would take some time. Nixon didn't immediately resign. But rather, when it became clear that Nixon was kind of in hot water, legally speaking, he resigned. And that left Gerald Ford as as the president. Gerald Ford, uh, he finished out Nixon's second term. However, he lost election to Jimmy Carter. So there was a political shift there from Republicans uh, to Democrats. That, I mean, as kind of as we saw with the Trump administration turning over to the Biden administration, there's just a bureaucratic inertia that has to switch, uh, change gears. And that takes time, like years uh, from political appointees getting everybody through, you know, through the Senate, et cetera. You're, the United States can't shift its foreign policy on a dime, even when, even when there's two, two different parties. We transition from Republicans to Democrats or Democrats to Republicans. So even though the Nixon administration, you know, went over there, high-fived Chairman Mao and everybody was all, uh, everybody was all happy, all not a whole lot of progress took place up until the Carter administration kind of got its feet underneath it. Russia is still very much the priority during the 70s for foreign policy. The Carter administration had a debacle in 1979 with the Iranians. Uh, And we were still reeling from Vietnam. There was still a lot of turmoil within the US. Oh yeah, great point. And we we were reeling from it, even though we had withdrawn I mean, Saigon fell in 75, and we had effective, effectively stopped providing com- combat troops on the ground in 72, I think. Uh, we were still reeling. Right. It, and that was back home. So it's not like we had a bunch of support to, to say, hey, let's go be friends with the Chinese. Yeah. So because of that, the joint, the joint communique wasn't really uh, hashed out with the Chinese until 1978, and it went into effect on the 1st of January, 1979. So in, in the interim, though, the U.S. did establish what it called the United States Liaison Office. In, in China, this liaison, liaison office had a formal ambassador. So it wasn't an embassy, but rather there was a U.S.-appointed ambassador Probably most notable was George H. W. Bush was was one of the ambassadors. There, I think there were like four or five during this time. Uh, so pretty pretty quick succession between them. Anyway, that's kind of where a lot of the legwork got done to negotiate and sign the second communique. You know, this is just a quick thought. Uh, obviously, diplomatic relations like this, it's a two-way street. Do you think, and I need to do some more research on this potentially, but that because Mao was still the chairman, that he, I don't know if slow roll is the right term, but he was potentially difficult for the United States to negotiate and work through this with simply because of, of Mao's ideal. His ideals were much further left than Deng Xiaoping or right. even Hua Gaofeng. No, that's a that's a really good point, Colin. Short answer is I haven't seen anything about 
Chairman Mao himself, like personally trying to slow roll the process. However, it wouldn't surprise me because Deng Xiaoping made a very famous visit to Washington, D.C., that Chairman Mao himself would have never done, not just for ideological reasons, but you know, health reasons. I mean, he di- he died in seventy six, so he criticized Khrushchev for going to the U.S. If you remember from a couple episodes ago, uh, right, so no, yeah. he wouldn't. He would not have done that. And and Deng Xiaoping knew he was a super smart dude. Uh, he knew, economically speaking, he needed the U.S. and that the U.S. wanted China. We're actually going to get into that in a future episode on all the different trade deals and the impact that they had on specifically the U.S. economy. But no, that's a good point. It wasn't just U.S. political considerations that I mentioned wasn't the only factor going on. It was uh, Deng Xiao and Deng Xiaoping didn't officially like take over from uh, Hua Guofeng until. Uh, what year was that? Seventy eight. It was seventy eight, but it was late in seventy eight. Yeah, so like a lot of the negotiation for the second joint communique probably took place with both of those guys, um, and Dang was the dude that was able to finally seal the deal. So, so that's no, so a that's a good question. So, can you walk me through what this second joint communique and what what that entailed, and how that affected both China and Taiwan? Yeah, absolutely. So, it's actually so. The communique is actually really short, so I'm actually going to read it, (laughs) and then I'm going to summarize the three big takeaways. So there are, formally, there are eight points in the communique. It's super short, so I'm going to read it real quick. Number one, the United States of America and the People's Republic of China have agreed to recognize each other and to establish diplomatic relations as of January 1st, 1979. Number two, the United States of America recognizes the government of the People's Republic of China, the communists, just let our listeners know those are the commies, as the sole legal government of China. Within this context, the people of the United States will maintain cultural, commercial, and other unofficial relations with the people of Taiwan. Number three, the United States of America and the People's Republic of China reaffirm the principles agreed on by the two sides in the Shanghai communique and emphasize once again that, number four, both wish to reduce the danger of international military conflict. Number five, neither should seek hegemony in the Asia-Pacific region or in any other region of the world, and each is opposed to efforts by any other country or group of countries to establish such hegemony. Number six, neither is prepared to negotiate on behalf of any third party or to enter into agreements or understandings with the other directed at other states, cough, cough, NATO, Number seven, the government of the United States of America acknowledges the Chinese position that there is but one China and Taiwan is part of China. Number eight, both believe that normalization of Sino-American relations is not only in the interest of the Chinese and American peoples, but also contributes to the cause of peace in Asia and the world. So that's a huge shift away from what they... What they said, what, seven years ago in the first resolution, where they basically said there is one China, but we're not going to admit who it is. Here they flat out say there is one China in the PRC is it, and Taiwan is part of that. Well, so it's, so this is, it's, it's funny you say that. So real quick, I'm going to cover what this communique is saying, and then I'm also going to cover what's not saying. All right. Because a very common misunderstanding is that like, well, there you have it. China is recognizing the PRC as the government of Taiwan. That's actually not what it's saying. (laughs) See, even the hosts learn a thing or two here. So what essentially what this communique did is it did three main things. Number one, it formally recognized and established relations between the U.S. and the PRC. Diplomatically speaking and economically speaking, that's important for like different 
you know, there's there's U.S. laws that prohibit the U.S. from doing certain things. Like the U.S. government can't do certain things. Like thank Congress restricting the authority of the executive branch to do things that we haven't recognized relations with, etc. Um, so formally formally establishing relations and like putting an embassy in one another's country that is actually a big deal. It's not a it's not just simply a um, you know, oh, we're just like declaring, like uh, like Michael Scott in the office. I declare a relationship. <laughs> That's not what's going on. Like it's actually like it actually did do something. Uh, for those of y'all that didn't just get my reference, <laughs> you go watch Michael the office. Scott, you got to watch the office. Michael Scott declares bankruptcy by yelling, "I declare bankruptcy." <laughs> it's one of the best scenes you know. I've ever seen. Ever. And Oscar's like, that's not how that works. He's like, you can't just say that. And he goes, I didn't say it. I declared, I declared it. it. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. So number three. Uh, number three. Or, or sorry, sorry. Wait, number two. Number Oof. two. So first, first, it recognized and established relations between the US and the PRC. Number two, it, it formally ended relations with Taiwan or the Republic of China. And this is important because that's that was that little blurb about, hey, we're going to maintain unofficial relations with people on Taiwan. That's what that means, is that the US no longer recognizes the Republic of China, which is the formal name of Taiwan, as the government of China. And then lastly, number three, by doing that, number two, we agreed to cancel our mutual defense treaty with Taiwan. So, uh, what this what this policy or what this communique did not do, much to the frustration of the of the CCP, was this policy did not recognize the uh, the CCP as the proper authoritative government over Taiwan. I know that can be really confusing because it because it literally says. Um, Let's see here. Number two, the United States of America recognizes the government of the People's Republic of China as the sole legal government of China. Our position on Taiwan, rather, is we we do believe that Taiwan, there is a government on the island of Taiwan, and it is up to Taiwanese and the CCP to come to an agreement on what that government looks like. So this is the this is the strategic ambiguity behind the one China policy is that hey we're saying there's one China and we're saying that Taiwan belongs to China you guys just got to figure it out but we're saying you guys got to figure it out we are not we the United States are not going to come down on a side and say uh, Taiwan the government like from in a legal sense that the CCP is the is the sovereign government over Taiwan. Speaking of, I was going to say, speaking of legal, mm -hmm. what kind of challenges, I feel like this might not have been popular within the US at the time. Were there any legal so, hurdles internally with the US to get yeah, this passed? I want to say one more thing before we get into that. Because I mentioned the one China principle, which is, mm -hmm. the, which is the current CCP articulation in their own words of right looks like. The key difference between the one China principle and the US one China policy is the recognition of the CCP as the sovereign government over Taiwan. The CCP says that it is the sole legal authority over Taiwan, whereas the one China policy doesn't say that. It just says there is one China, Taiwan's a part of China, but you guys need to figure out what your thing is here. So, the ambiguity has always been completely dependent upon what the position of the Taiwanese people themselves are. We did not, in this communique, uh, we did not remove the recognition of the people of Taiwan to self-determination, which is an which is a phrase in international relations theory that Woodrow goes back to Woodrow Wilson when he talked about in his 14 points during World War One that all nations have a right to self-determination, i.e. if they want to be a free people, they have a right to pursue that. Hmm. Um, 
And it's honestly this anti-imperialist line of thinking that if these people want to be free, then the United States government supports them in being free. We didn't change that in in this second joint communique, although we really blurred those lines. <laughs> okay. So that was a great explanation. What legal hurdles did they face in the United States to get this thing passed? Yeah. So uh, several but we're going to focus on one and it kind of and it kind of focuses on the the mutual defense treaty so carter administration democrats you know who hates democrats republicans <laughs> so of course uh, there's this um uh god colin help me what's the phrase for the watchdog party that's it you know the republicans at this time are the watchdog party and to be the watchdog party you basically have to disagree with whatever the other poli- other parties doing right wrong or indifferent right it is a drawback to the two party system we've talked about in previous episodes that the two party system i think is actually better than a multi party system and and if for those for those listeners that have been with us from the beginning, you will know that at least I, Jay, am anti-libertarian. <laughs> so so yeah, I think the two-party system it has its shortfalls, but it's still the best system out there. One of those shortfalls is, of course, the Republicans are going to complain no matter what when the Democrats are in office and vice versa. So when so what happened? in 1978, 1979, was the Carter administration unilaterally withdrew from what what was called the Sino-American Mutual Defense Treaty, i.e. we were going to defend Taiwan. Well, that was an actual like treaty that was ratified in the Senate, I believe during the Eisenhower administration, but I'm not entirely confident on that. So when the Carter administration unilaterally canceled this bad boy, the Republicans in the Senate lost their marbles. And, and a dude named Barry Goldwater, who- Ran for uh, president. Ran for president. There's a very famous act that basically defined the US military as it currently is, the Goldwater-Nichols Act. Um, the, yeah, as, as I said, the US military as we know it came into being because of the Goldwater-Nichols Act. So Barry, Barry Goldwater- filed a lawsuit along with some other senators in uh, basically claiming that the Carter administration didn't have the legal grounds and was overstepping its bounds in its executive powers by unilaterally nullifying this treaty. Interestingly enough, it went all the way to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court dismissed the case. And the Supreme Court dismissed the case. This is Colin did a really good episode on significant Supreme Court cases. Uh, if you guys want to sh- scroll down and look at that one, but uh, this is another just fascinating Supreme Court case. And the reason why the Supreme Court dismissed this case was because of, a, of something called in, in constitutional law called the political question, i.e. if something, if a question is political in nature, as opposed to legal in nature, the Supreme Court doesn't want to hear about it. <laughs> the Supreme Court is not a political entity. Mm. Rather, it is a legal entity. That's why Supreme Courts don't hold justices don't hold political parties. They're not partisan. Rather, they just interpret the Constitution and apply it in legal cases. So the reason why this was not this was a political and not a legal matter was because the Senate had not actually formally challenged the executive branch by adopting a resolution. There was a draft resolution that could have been voted on in the Senate. And if it were to have been voted and approved by the Senate, I don't know if a simple majority or a super majority would have done it, but if it would have been voted on and approved, it would have been a formal challenge. And then it would have been a legal question, not a political question. But because Goldwater and the other senators that filed this lawsuit with them chose to go the lawsuit route as opposed to the formal resolution voted upon by the members of of the Senate route. It was a political question, not a legal question, and the Supreme Court dismissed it, and it, and it ended there. And now we do not have a 
defense treaty with with the Taiwanese. So that's kind of a that's a really good transition point here because I do want to talk about applying that to today. So there's no defense treaty. Let's let's throw a hypothetical out there. Let's say the Chinese yeah. do actually attempt an invasion of Taiwan. Does the U.S., in your opinion, have the legal? Well, I guess not even your opinion. Do they have the legal right to yeah. intervene? Yeah. So, I think it's one that's that's a great question. Two, when Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait in 1990. The U.S. was not treaty allies with Kuwait, so we didn't have a defense treaty with Kuwait. But what? So the legal justification for kicking the Iraqi army out of Kuwait was a UN resolution. So we 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 gained legal justification through international law that was agreed upon there in the UN. So it kind of depends, and this and the Chinese know this. When it comes to what happens in a PRC Taiwanese conflict, it is super hard to say what's going to happen because nobody knows how it's going to happen. If one day, all of a sudden, you know, we all wake up and we re- see the morning news, read the morning news, and we see missiles are impacting Taiwan, to me that like it would be pretty easy to to come up with a legal justification to repel the chinese because frankly diplomatically speaking and the chinese know this they're very much isolated there are way more countries that would fall in line that the us would be able to pressure in the in the um to condemn to you know do whatever to condemn that invasion so I do want to bring up a point, and we're talking about the legality and is the U.S. bound by any kind of treaty or act? And there's, we talked about it, the strategic ambiguity you mentioned just 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 recently when you were talking about the second communique. We also have this strategic ambiguity with Taiwan, with the Taiwan, uh, yeah, the Taiwan Relations Act and the Six Assurances. So these were signed kind of on the flip side of this, what was going on with China in the early 80s during the Reagan administration in 82. And, you know, so when you have this second communique signed, uh, the Taiwanese were obviously very upset. And I believe they're, you know, they basically said something along the lines of, you've basically thrown us and given us up to red tyranny. They were not happy about this. Whereas when we signed this Taiwan Relations Act and these six assurances, basically Deng Xiaoping viewed it as, us being insincere and being a, a bad international partner and a, we can't really say ally, but at least partner. And we were insincere in our negotiations when in reality, we are still trying to hold the Chinese in check. And I, I do want to read a couple excerpts from the Taiwan Relations Act because it's relevant. So in the act, it states that the United States will make available in Taiwan such defense articles and defense services in such quantity as may be necessary to enable Taiwan to maintain a sufficient self-defense capability. And it goes on to say, shall maintain the capacity of the United States to resist any res- to resist any resort to force or other forms of coercion that would jeopardize the security, social, economic systems of the people of Taiwan. And then within the six assurances, and this was in 82, we do not agree to set a date certain for ending arms sales to Taiwan. We see no mediation role in the United States between Taiwan and PRC. We see no attempt to exert pressure on Taiwan to enter negotiations with the PRC. There will be no change in the longstanding position of the issue of sovereignty over Taiwan, or there has been no change. And we have no plans to seek revisions to the Taiwan Relations Act and August 17th communique should be not be read to imply that we have agreed to engage in prior consultations with Beijing on arms sales to Taiwan. It's a lot of reading and a lot of stuff, but what it does is it provides us just enough wiggle room that we can provide, continue providing arms and services. And that if we view the Chinese invasion of Taiwan as something that is going to destabilize the peace of the Western Pacific, we are able to intervene. So I read all that to simply say that technically speaking, legally speaking, we can invade. And that's really what's holding the Chinese at bay. 
the fact that they know that the U.S. can uh, prevent or intervene and prevent a Chinese invasion of Taiwan. It's important to note because, as we've seen with some of these war games, the United States is going to be very reliant on South Korea, Japan, Australia, the Philippines, some of these other allies within the area to call them to to aid in their assistance in fighting the Chinese. Yeah, <laughs> it's funny as you were as you were talking, I was thinking about like so Reagan after all this after all this happened, Reagan actually kind of got in hot water with his own administration because he Again, the Soviet Union has always been, or at least at that time, had always been a little bit more important than China. <laughs> they were the big threat. And, and old Ronnie Reagan ran on a very hardline hawkish stance towards the Soviet Union, Iran, you name it, like he was, he was uh, hawkish. Well, that included somewhat China, anti-communists. And he actually kind of got in hot water because he talked about defending Taiwan uh, after he got elected, but prior to him being inaugurated, he talked about like a public speech was like, and we're going to make sure that we defend the Taiwanese and blah, blah, blah. And then like his administration, his like admin- future administration people were like, Whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> like, we just uh, negotiated this. Don't open your mouth right now, and, please. And and they issued like so candidate Reagan, he was he was elected, but he had not been inaugurated, but candidate Reagan's staff actually issued an apology saying like, Hey, yeah, I didn't mean to say that, blah 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 blah. Well, you know, it's because the Chinese, you brought up the Soviets, at this point were still kind of viewed and they positioned themselves as a united front. You heard that again, a united front, the CCP and the KMT, if you remember from world the Sino-Japanese War, the second one, there was a united front. They positioned themselves as a united front actually against the Soviet Union. So yes, that was the big dog, the big enemy were the Soviets and any weakening of the alliance against the Soviets, yes, was considered problematic. But I think it's important to note that, you know, and, and by the way, that that Taiwan Relations Act and those six assurances were, were reaffirmed in, in 2016. So they're still, as of right now, being upheld. And if you remember from the news, Nancy Pelosi, it was a big deal making a visit to Taiwan because the the Chinese viewed it as like, obviously, don't recognize the Republic of China anymore. But the Speaker of the House visiting a country on an official visit is seen as kind of a slap, a political slap in the face or a diplomatic slap in the face to the CCP, especially going to Taiwan, which is such a hot button issue. But the reality is, so I, I talked about the legal precedent set. The reality is, in Colin's opinion, that Taiwan would be defended simply because of their extreme economic value that they bring to the United States right now with microchip technology and some of the technology that they produce in semiconductors that is produced nowhere else. They have the infrastructure and the equipment to do it. So Nancy Pelosi was going to visit, I think, partly going to visit those factories to make sure that everything is okay, because that's really what we would be defending. I think you get into kind of a, you know, we have the legal justification to get involved. There's a moral obligation. Do we want to stop the communists? But every moral action, I feel like still has kind of a, uh, what's in it for me? Is the juice worth the squeeze here? Like, are we going to go send a lot of Americans to die to defend this place for no reason other than stopping communism? Well, no, we want to make sure we get something out of it. And part of that, I believe, is the economic value that Taiwan brings right now. And they are absolutely going to maximize their value, economically speaking, with the semi-chips or semiconductors and microchips. So uh, that's why I think we would, A, legally be able to, and B, for the strategic value of Taiwan. I don't think there would be any sort of moral crisis in the United States that would uh, incentivize us to go over there. It would be completely strategic in nature. Yeah, no, you're exactly right. Um, there's we've, we've talked about the two competing schools of international relations, very broadly speaking, is the realist and the idealist school. The idealist school, you know, kind of to your point, Colin, it's like... You know, we're going to fight for this liberal world order. And it's like, is it really worth it? We're going to spread democracy. Yeah. (laughs) 
We're here to liberate you. <laughs> I just think of, I don't know if this, if it, I need to post this meme so people can understand it, but it's, it's SpongeBob SquarePants and they're like, uh, like walking out of a burning city and they're like, we did it, Patrick. We saved the city and the, the city's just rubble and just flattened down to nothingness. And it's kind of a joke. Like we've liberated yeah. you. We've liberated we you were, from this yeah. evil. <laughs> All right. See you guys later. So as you're talking, I was I was reminded about Thucydides in the history of the Peloponnesian War, which, folks, if you have not read the history of the Peloponnesian War, you have to. You must. It is absolutely fantastic. Highly recommend getting the landmark Thucydides. I forget the editor's name uh, and translator's name. Forgive me, but it's called Landmark Thucydides. It has maps. It's got tons of footnotes. If you try to read like the Penguin Classics, it's a good translation, but there's just so many like names and places and things like that. It's really hard to follow along if you can't see it. Whereas the Landmark Thucydides has like maps on nearly every single page that's like, oh, this is the village they're talking about. It's here. Anyway, uh, so Thucydides, one of the things that makes Thucydides such a classic is that the things in which he talk about, the things in which he talks about are timeless and they apply to so many different situations. So during the Peloponnesian War, which was a war between Athens and Sparta and their allies, right? And various partners, the Persians got involved late. uh, And Athens and Sparta were decided to fight this war because Athens' power was growing and the Spartans were afraid of their power. Athens was a naval power, Sparta was a land power, and you know this this war went on for over a decade. At one point in the war, there was this tiny island in the Aegean called Melos, and the people that lived there were called the Melians. And there there is a one of the best like just scenes in all of history, if I can be so bold, is a thing called the Melian Dialogue. Uh, you could just, you could literally just pick up a copy of the history of the Peloponnesian War and just read the Melian Dialogue, and it's already worth whatever you paid for it. And there's so many copies, you you could probably get it pretty cheap. Anyway, this Melian Dialogue is is just a conversation between the Athenian dip- diplomats and the Melian diplomats, and it is it's it's one of the best just like give and takes of all like international relations, human nature, like philosophy. Like these are Greeks, you know, think Greek philosophers that are writing this stuff. There are just two two things that I want to talk about. So if anyone anyone has heard heard the phrase, the strong do what they can and the weak suffer what they must, that comes from the Melian Dialogue. So I'm going to read a little bit of the, of the context here. So two paragraphs. First one's the Melian diplomats, the second one's the Athenians. So this is the Melians. It is natural and... Oh, sorry. I should go back. The context of this dialogue was the Athen. So Melos was a colony of Sparta, but they had not yet joined the war. So the Athenian diplomats came to them and said, hey, you guys need to abandon Sparta or we're going to invade you and kill you. Um, and so this is this is a negotiation between Melos and, and Athens where Athens is trying to get the Melians to stand down or trying to get the Melians to basically surrender. Whereas Melos is trying to say like, we're not, we're neutral. We're not involved in this war, even though they're kind of friendly to the Spartans. All right. First paragraph, Melos. It is natural and understandable that people who are placed as we should have recourse to all kinds of arguments and different points of view. However, you are right in saying that we are met together here to discuss the safety of our country, and if you will have it so, the discussions shall proceed on the lines that you have laid down. So it's just like this introductory, this is why we're here, so on and so forth. Athens, and this is the key paragraph, Athens. Then we on our side will use no fine phrases saying, 
for example, that we have a right to our empire because we defeated the Persians, or that we have come against you now because of the injuries that you have done to us, a great mass of words that nobody would believe. And we ask you on your side not to imagine that you will influence us by saying that you, though a colony of Sparta, have not joined Sparta in the war, or that you have never done us any harm. Instead, we recommend that you should try to get what is possible for you to get, taking into consideration what we both really do think. Since you know as well as we uh, do that, when these matters are discussed by practical people, this, and listen, listen in, the standard of justice depends on the equality of power to compel. And in that fact, the strong do what they will and the weak suffer what they must. So here's why I'm reading this paragraph here. Athens begin. So Melos begins the dialogue. This is just to give context saying, hey, this is why we're here. Athens responds and says, great. I'm glad we're on the same page. So we're not going to waste our time trying to make these superficial arguments that nobody believes, i.e. we've got a right to our empire. They are, Athens is rejecting the idealist school of international relations and saying, and they are fully committed to the realist school of thought, so much so that they are saying the standard of justice depends upon the equality of power to compel, i.e., Athens is like the strongest power in town. Melos is this really tiny island that knows they can't defend themselves. And that's why we see the strong do what they have, or another translation of the strong do what they will and the weak suffer what they must is the strong do what they have the power to do and the weak accept what they have to accept, i.e., I'm Athens, I'm the strong power. I'm going to do what I want to do, and you, Melos, who are weak, you have to accept what you have to accept, i.e., you have to do what you have to do. So when it comes to China and Taiwan, it is very clear here who the stronger power is, right? And China is basically saying, like, we beat you during the Civil War. You are a tiny island that is right next to our country. We can do what we want to do. Uh, you have to give over what you want to do. Or, or sorry, you have to give over because you have to. One one more little blurb here. And this is super hard because the Melian Dialogue is all of it is awesome. But here, the, a few paragraphs later, this is how the Melians respond. And how could it be just for us to be the slaves as for you to be the masters. How is it good for us to be slaves and you to be the masters? The Athenians, you, by giving in, would save yourself from disaster. We, by not destroying you, would be able to profit from you. This is extremely important to the Chinese, by the way. They don't want to destroy Taiwan. They want those semiconductors. They want those people. They want those taxes. They want, they want Taipei intact. It's not good for the CC or for you know PRC to destroy uh, Taiwan. The Athenians are making the same argument here. Going on, the Melians. So you would not agree to being our neutral friends instead of enemies, but allies of neither side. Athenians, no, because it is not so much your hostility that injures us. Rather, it is the case that if we were on friendly terms with you. Our subjects would regard that as a sign of weakness in us, whereas your hatred is evidence of our power. So Athens is saying here, we cannot be friends or neutral with you because the sheer fact that you exist is, is a declaration of our weakness and we cannot abide. <laughs> so Jay, how does that relate to Taiwan, China, and the other U.S. allies with all of this going on, because that's a great, it's a great dialogue. First off, right. but it, it does relate heavily to what is happening here in other oh, allies. Yeah. Well, in a, and in a lot of different ways too, right? So there's there's the obvious, clear like China Taiwan dichotomy here, where like that's the immediate relevance is like 
China is not going to stop until Taiwan is a part of China. Like, I truly believe that even if we fight a war, even if the either by the Taiwanese by themselves or through some kind of international, i.e., the you know, international support, uh, the Taiwanese were able to defend themselves, they would lose that war. And then 50 maybe, hopefully 50 years later, there would be another one. Like it would be like a World War One, World War II. Like the as long as the CCP is in power, they will not stop because, and that's why I read that second thing. It is not so much your hostility that injures us. Rather, is the case that if we were on friendly terms with you, our subjects would regard that as a sign of weakness in us. Whereas your hatred, i.e. their hatred for the Melians is evidence of our power. Long story short here to to tell you guys what happens, spoiler alert, the Melians refuse and the Athenians invade and kill all of them. It's one of the more brutal brutal aspects. And this happens relatively early in the war, by the way, where like literally every male on the island dies of regardless of age and all of their women are either given over to Athenian men or sold into sex slavery, basically. Uh, back in back in Athens, so like Melos functionally ceases to exist in in this story. So another another aspect of relevancy relevancy here is if if that is the if that's what China's calculus is, uh, that could also be the United States calculus, right? Like there is. Uh, if the if the Chinese, in the same way that the Athenians, double down on this realistic school of thought, then there's nothing to prevent the United States from then looking at China and, and saying, uh, the standard of justice depends on the equality of power to compel, and that the strong do what they can and the weak suffer what they must. I've said it before on this podcast, the United States is still the strongest country that has ever existed in all of human civilization. Like We, we still got it, folks, I promise. <laughs> like, the... Is everything perfect? No. Are there very real problems that we need to address? Yes, and of course. However, like we, if we really wanted to, if we really wanted to, we could inflict a pain on the PRC that this world has never seen. What's what's holding us back is not ability. What is holding us back is will. And I'm not saying that that would be just. I'm just trying to say that there's. Like if we accept the terms as the strong do what they will and the weak suffer what they must, then in this instance between the U.S. and China, China is weak, the U.S. and the West writ large is strong, right? So there's another standard to say like if we were to ask the question like, well, should the U.S. get involved? Jay's Jay's personal inclination is heck yeah, because we can. Like – we could, in the same way that I've argued that we should have gotten involved in the Russian invasion of Ukraine, we sh- we should get involved in China for no other reason than we can, and it's good for the international order writ large to have a democratic uh, power that respects human rights, defending and willing to commit acts of violence in defense of innocent people. Wow. <laughs> that is a lot to process. I think that's a good I think that's a good note to wrap up on. Wrap up with a bang here. Oh shoot, yeah. <laughs> I uh no that I think what you just added is a little bit of perspective in a great way to reframe the situation that is occurring right now. The million dialogue is a great way to look at it. And you're right, from an American, from a Chinese perspective. I think that's going to start to drive the next couple episodes that we have where we start talking about trade in the 80s and 90s and even through to today. We're going to get into the the next Taiwan Strait crisis. We're going to talk about the trade the quote-unquote trade war that occurred with Donald Trump and then where it's leaving up where it is leading us to within the next 10 to 15 years potentially in conflict with the Chinese. So I think this is that was a good stopping point because I think it helps Jay what you just said helps kind of put a great perspective on what people should be looking at this as. It's not hmm, the strong do as they or the strong do as they will and the weak do as they must. It's pretty much how it is with Taiwan. They're the they're the millions. They're the yeah. island of Melos right now. Right. And they're caught I, between remind, two superpowers. I'm even reminded of a of a Jordan Peterson uh, 
not quote, but just comment that he actually likes to say repeatedly now. And he's speaking about the individual uh, and he's addressing like masculinity in general, but I think it applies to what we're talking about here. And that is, there is no moral virtue in being weak. Rather, there is moral virtue in being strong and being able to control it. Hmm. So for the United States here, there is no moral virtue in saying, we're not going like we're not going to do anything. Rather, there is moral virtue in saying we we are going to freaking. I don't we're know. Going to <laughs> we're going to we're going to defend Taiwan. We we are able to punch you in the freaking face, uh, and but we will. We will if you do something. If you, if do, you something, do something, yeah, right. All right. That's all right. There we go. That's a good note. <laughs> <sighs> all right. So. Just in closing, Jay, great episode. I think we've got, we're going to get, continue on this series next week when we start talking about deals with the devil. Was this trade, these trade agreements and this new relationship that we've created with China, was it a net positive or net negative for the US economy? I think that's going to be an interesting way to look at it because we've heard just mentioned with the Trump campaign, that was one of their big focuses were the unfair trade agreements and the, the, effects of those trade agreements over time. And so was it was it a net benefit or a net negative? We'll continue on. And if you guys want to follow us on social media, give us a follow. We're on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, on different versions and of at Loins of History. Give us a five-star review. Helps the algorithm out, whether you're not listening on Podcast Addict, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or or whatever medium you can listen to podcasts on. Give us a rating. We'll give you a shout out. If you give us the five-star rating, just because it helps the algorithm and it got to write a review as well so we can take a look and see what your rating was. So, and we love getting feedback as well, whether you send us a message or interact with us on social media, we like getting feedback and interacting with any, any folks that are out there that uh, love history. So thank you for listening and hope to see you next week. 